0: But every now and then, there'd be a word. For example, in Russian, the word adnaka means however. And if you're reading something and suddenly you see the word adnaka, they're saying to you, hey, buddy, there's something here that is not quite right. They're telling you something they want you to know.
1: Marvin Kolb is an award-winning reporter who worked for over 30 years at CBS News and NBC News. Cobb was the last newsman recruited by Edward R. Murrow to join CBS News, specializing in Russian affairs. His book, Assignment Russia, tells the story of Cobb's journey into broadcast news and the reopening of CBS's Moscow bureau in the midst of the Cold War. This is the Sperber Prize podcast, where I'll talk to winners and nominees of the annual award given by Fordham University in honor of author Anne M. Sperber and her remarkable biography of Edward R. Murrow. The award seeks to promote outstanding biographies and memoirs, detailing the curious backgrounds to some of history's biggest stories in print and electronic journalism. As always, I'm your host, Kevin Denis. Joining me today is Mr. Marvin Kaub, award-winning reporter for CBS and NBC News, and the author of the book we're looking at today, Assignment Russia. Uh, Mr. Cobb, how are you doing?
0: I'm doing just fine, Kevin. Nice to be with you.
1: Great to have you. Um, So first things first, this is, I think, your 17th book of your career, right?
0: That is right, yes. But the second, that is a memoir.
1: The second, that's a memoir. The first memoir was?
0: Was called The Year I Was Peter the Great, and that came out. About three years ago, I guess.
1: But you've been studying Russia since, I believe, your senior year of college. That is correct. What really drove you to focus on Russia for the your whole career?
0: Well, Russia had a lot of competition in my life at that time, but it was college time. It was um, oh, five or six years after the end of World War II. It was a time of economic prosperity in the United States. A time of joy, so many soldiers coming back, but sadness that so many could not come back. And I was searching for a line of work that would satisfy me long-term. And there were three possibilities. One was to be a teacher, which I had always wanted to be. Two was to be a lawyer, which is what my father wanted me to be. (laughs) And the third Was journalism because my brother was already in journalism, Bernard Kalb. He was a foreign correspondent for the New York Times. And he would bring a lot of Times people home for dinner. And I would sit there as a kid listening to their exciting stories about what they covered, wartime, big political stories. It was very exciting. And when I was finishing college at the City College of New York, I was sort of torn in these three directions because I didn't know quite what kind of graduate work to do. And I decided that I would go, I was accepted, happily accepted, um, at the Harvard Russian Research Center. And that set me on a career toward a PhD in Russian history. So that if I were to be a teacher, I would need that. If I were to be a journalist, I would need that. If I were to be a lawyer, no, I would not need it. And that was the first break. I dropped the idea of being a lawyer. And so I started studying Russian language, history, culture, literature, and it was fascinating. And at that time, the tail end of the 1940s, into the 1950s, both nations, Russia, the Soviet Union, and the United States were on parallel tracks but very definitely in strong, sometimes severe competition with each other. I found the story to be incredibly exciting. In 1956, I was given the opportunity to work in Moscow for the State Department for a year. I happily accepted that, that opportunity. I lived in Moscow for 13 months. I perfected my Russian. I learned a great deal what I had already studied history and all and knew a great deal about it. But when you're there, it's totally different. You meet people, you see things that were theoretical before that become actual on site, And one thing led to another and I was determined in one way or another that I would spend a good part of my life. Reporting from Russia, studying Russia, teaching Russia, One thing or another, Russia would be
1: there. And then you were back in America, and this book kind of picks up when you started out at CBS, where you entered the newsroom but didn't really have any journalism experience. How did um sort of breaking into the industry at that time where television news was growing and broadcast journalism was sort of at its peak, what impressions did that leave on you just about the industry as a whole?
0: Well, the impressions that were left were very strong and obviously lasted. I have to tell you a kind of amusing story which led to my being hired at CBS. And that goes to my relationship with the great journalist of his time and as far as I'm concerned to this day, and that's Edward O'Murro. The New York Times had asked me to do a piece on a new poll that had just been taken in the Soviet Union on the attitudes of Soviet youth. And I was very happy to accept that assignment. And I spent a great deal of time studying not only the poll, but the implications of the poll. And I did this long piece for the Times Magazine, which appeared on a Sunday in May of 1957. Uh, Murrow must have read it, liked it. And on Monday morning, he called me and I was at the Widener Library uh, up at Harvard doing my thing. And the librarian came over to me and said that there's a man on the phone who identifies himself as Edward R. Would you talk to him? And I turned to her and I said, Edward R. is not calling me, believe me. He doesn't even know me. Hang up on the guy. He's probably some quack. And I don't know whether she actually did hang up on him, but um, she came back to that okay, that's that. But then he called back later in the afternoon in which he came to me again and pronounced, this man says he's Edward O'Murrow, he's on the phone, I'd like to talk to you. I said to myself, um, who knows? Picked up the phone and the minute I heard his voice, which was so distinctive, I realized what a total jackass I had been. And I apologized to him for not having talked to him in the morning. He brushed that off very quickly. And he said, can you come to my office tomorrow morning at 930? I said, absolutely. Where is your office? He said, in New York. I said to myself, not to him. To him, I said, sure, I'll be there to myself. I was waiting. What is the best way of getting there? And it was a late night train, not important. And I was there at about nine o'clock and waited. And secretary opened the door at 9.30 and said, Mr. Murrow, will see you. And I went in to talk to him. And she said, you've got a half hour. We spoke for three hours. And it was simply because Murrow was so intensely interested, so curious about everything going on in the Soviet Union. Remember, Kevin, we were in this Cold War, and things were very tense. And there weren't that many journalists in the Soviet Union. So the bits and pieces that you got out of Russia were very valuable. They were prized. And Murrow is asking questions about uh, Soviet youth, their religion. Do they have... Um, uh, What kind of relationships do they have with friends, parents, church, uh, university, uh, everything. He wanted to know everything. And I was truly honored to be in a position of telling him everything that I knew anyway, that I had picked up both in my studies and in the Soviet Union. And after three hours, he put his arm around me and he said, thank you so much for this by the way, how would you like to work for CBS? It took me, Kevin, about two and a half seconds to say, yes, sir. I'd be absolutely delighted to do that. And out the window went my career as a professor of Russian history. And I was welcomed into the world of Murrow's type of journalism, which I respected at the time. And since have seen absolutely no reason to back away from that form of journalism, that respect for truth, that kind of courage and decency that went into his pursuit of knowledge and information that he passed on to the American people. So I started long-windedly, I'm saying to you, I started at CBS. I was in an overnight shift. came in at midnight, left at eight in the morning. I worked for WCBS radio, which is the local affiliate of the CBS network. And my job was to write hourly newscasts. And I'd never done that in my life. And nobody was there at the very beginning to tell me how to do this. And I was vamping and in the middle of the night, by the way, there was not another soul there with me. I was alone, totally inexperienced. I mean, I did know about Russia, but I didn't know about real professional journalism. And at about five o'clock in the morning, a jolly chubby man came in with a New York Yankees cap, a man named Hal Terkel was who's a great editor. And I had written a newscast that started with bulletin from New Delhi, India. 37 people died today when a boat capsized in the Ganges. And Hal looked at that and then looked at me and he said, supposing you were a New Yorker, you lived in Queens, and you got up at four in the morning and you turned on the five o'clock news to find out what? You wanted to find out about the weather, who the Yankees were pitching that day, Uh, what was going on, Who's picking up the garbage. That's what you wanted to know, not anything from India. That was my first lesson. Who's reading you? Who's listening to you? What's the point of what you're saying? And Hal explained that to me. And after the first couple of weeks, I really did get it. I did commentaries for Murrow, I did commentaries for Blair Clark, who was the man who did a wonderful program called The World Tonight, which was a 15-minute news program at eight o'clock at night. And it went largely for analytics. And so I did that. I got absorbed in a news story that was developing, in my opinion, but I couldn't sell it to anybody until two or three years later. And that was the early split between Russia and communist China. And nobody would believe me. My scholar friends up at Harvard didn't believe me. Friends of mine from the State Department who, whom I had met at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow didn't believe me. And I was certain that something was going on. It just didn't. Their newspapers which reflected the views of the communist parties of Russia and China were beginning to say different things. Anyway, I decided in 1959, uh, I, was, I think that I described this in the book in some detail. In 1959, I was given an opportunity to get a fellowship at Columbia for one year as a CBS fellow. And there were eight or nine of us that were selected each year I was selected and I used that time that year to travel all around the world, searching for people who knew about China, who knew about Russia, uh, experts, wherever they could be. I went and I spent four months just bouncing all over the world. It was great fun. It also taught me a great deal about journalism and the mix of journalism and scholarship to me, good journalism is good scholarship, and the idea that journalism is the first draft of history strikes me as right, that's about right. And I went all over the place, and then I wrote a second book. My first one came out in 58. In 59, I wrote it into 60, and it came out in 61, which was uh, called Dragon in the Kremlin, which was the study of the way in which the Russian Chinese alliance was beginning to fracture apart. It was incredibly exciting. And in May of 1960, and again, I described this in the book in detail, CBS sent me to Moscow to reopen the CBS bureau. Um, I stopped in Paris on the way for a summit meeting, which never quite took place. I was very lucky and got an exclusive interview with Khrushchev in Paris, um, which by the way, when you get into journalism, if you're not there already, getting an exclusive with the leader of the opposition country, not a bad way to start. <laughs> and I was very lucky, it just happened. Um, and then we, my wife and I went into Moscow, reopened the bureau and, and that was just, as exciting as it
1: could be. I'm glad you brought up how you were able to find that breakdown of the Chinese-Russian relationship um, just from reading the newspapers because it seemed like that was a big reason that Murrow picked you because you had an ability to read the Soviet press, which came through differently than traditional American press. Um, There were a lot of different meanings. Can you talk a little bit about just how you had to approach reading Soviet press and pulling the important info from it?
0: Before I got that job at the US Embassy in Moscow, I was going on for my PhD and I was studying contemporary Soviet life. And so it flowed naturally that I would read the Soviet press for research purposes. Then the job I had in Moscow literally was to read the Soviet press every day and to translate it. And so I became pretty good, not only at translating the Soviet press, but at understanding the way in which Soviet journalism told stories. And it it was for the most part, communist jargon. And you could just read through it very quickly. But every now and then there'd be a word. For example, in Russian, the word adnaka, means, um, however. And if you're reading something and suddenly you see the word adnaka, they're saying to you, hey, buddy, there's something here that is not quite right. And they would tell you something different from the established party line, but nevertheless sanctioned by the party. They're telling you something they want you to know that there is a problem here. Now, there may not have been a problem there, in fact, but they wanted you to think there was. And so I, you know, if you do this every day, you get fairly good at it and I got fairly good at this and when I then joined CBS, though it was not part of my responsibility at all, I nevertheless did that in my spare time And every week I would send a two or three page memo to the anchors and to the executive producers of the major CBS programs. What I was hoping was that I was helping them make a better decision on what kind of news from the Soviet Union ought to be considered important. And we lived at that time, Kevin, at a time in network life when people took that very seriously. And I was very lucky that they did. If I were to do that today, I have a feeling they'd throw me out as somebody, not one of the boys, kind of doing his thing. But in Morrow's day, that was appreciated. And that was, I think... One of the reasons that they sent me to Moscow also because I'd lived there, I'd been there, I knew the language. And so it was not a huge gamble on their part. There was a gamble in one respect, and it was very important. If I had failed, CBS could look terrible. Fortunately, I didn't, so they looked good. So that launched me and helped CBS.
1: Do you think that it was appreciated more than, than it is today because of the impact of Murrow and the values that you mentioned he sort of inspired everyone around you to have?
0: The answer to your question is yes. Look, I remember the CBS newsroom in 1957, eight, nine, and, and then I went to Moscow and went overseas. When I came back in 1963, I was the diplomatic correspondent for CBS then working out of Washington. The Washington bureau was fantastic. It was an unbelievable bureau. It lasted for about ten or fifteen years. In the 1970s, television news began to change. In the 1980s, it changed very dramatically with the rise of CNN and totally different mindset. The new technology, the rise of the internet in the 90s, everything in a revolutionary way, changed the business, changed the ethics, changed the underlying drive of the industry. And today, there are magnificent reporters. Let me be very, very clear about that. There are terrific journalists. Look at what's happening in Ukraine now. They are doing a phenomenal job, but it's different. And it's different because of the technology and the ethical standards of the industry.
1: Mm -hmm. So back to Russia real quick, Um, back to the book. But you mentioned earlier in the interview and in the book that everything coming out of Russia is very much controlled by what they want you to hear. And then you also mentioned that the Russian point of view is based on ideological conformity basically all throughout the country. How did you navigate that as a reporter going into some interviews where you know kind of what you're going to get because it's just all aligned with these ideologies?
0: Well, that's true. I was fortunate in that when I went back to Moscow for CBS in 1960, I had had the experience of having lived there earlier and I learned it as a scholar, but also as a diplomat. And there were different ways in which you could look at Russia, but there were certain constants within the reality of Russia. And that is that the people are incredibly talented, many of them very nice, but the government is unbelievably cruel and backward. And that was true when I first went there in 56, and it certainly is true today. As a journalist, you have to first understand the environment in which facts like mushrooms grow and which of those mushrooms you're going to pick, which are reliable, which will give the viewer or the listener in my case at CBS, which would give them their best chance of understanding the reality of what I'm trying to convey. And you have to use language that is honest in in your description of Soviet reality, but language that is understandable to your audience like the guy who gets up at four o'clock in the morning in Queens is not interested in the boat capsizing in the Ganges. He wants to find out who's pitching for the Yankees. You have to find out what your audience is, what is of interest, of value and importance and convey that as best you can. And if at all possible, Don't do it on the basis of a clock. Do it on the basis of your comfort, no matter how long it takes to get it right. Because you can get a story first and get it wrong. And sometimes it's better if you get a story second. That'll give you a little more time to go back and check with your sources to make sure what you're saying is as close to reality as you can get it.
1: Do you think the strength of that reporting commanded more respect from the American public then?
0: Without any question, the answer is yes. Uh, The American public at that time came to respect the sort of reporting that people like Murrow, and of course Murrow himself, provided to them. That is why Murrow, for example, in his great broadcast of March 9, 1954, about Senator Joseph McCarthy did more to undercut the destructive path that that man was pursuing than any other piece of reporting. There was a lot of good stuff, but Murrow's half hour that night undercut McCarthy's strength in a major way because Murrow allowed McCarthy to kill McCarthy rather than Moreau do it. Yes, and I think the American people respected that enormously.
1: In regard to that and reporting with strong values, you always spoke about, I remember you mentioned in the book, reporting it, how you see it, just telling the truth. Now, at the time in Russia, obviously they were controlling things you say. You mentioned that the KGB was pretty much everywhere, reading what you wrote, listening to what you said. How did you navigate? keeping things tight to the vest sometimes that you don't want the Russians to know?
0: If you didn't want the Russians to know something, you went out for a walk. And you went out for a walk, not near any official building. Go to a park, uh, go along the river. I used to do a lot of walking along the Moscow River. And when I would meet people I did not want to harm, but people who would be telling me something, uh, we could meet along the Moscow River and take a walk. That would give me pretty good assurance that nobody was listening. And also that the, my source could simply vanish and walk away from me. And that'd be the end of it.
1: With regards to your first day in Paris, you met Khrushchev that day. But you had a relationship with him prior, right? From the, could you get into how you met him and how you think your relationship helped you professionally?
0: Well, there are two questions there. The first, how I met him, I describe in great detail and happy to do so now, but I think we're shortly running out of time. But um, I met Khrushchev in in 1956 at the US Embassy, July 4th. And it was um, a wonderful chance encounter. And because I spoke Russian, I was able to talk to him. And because I'm 6'3 and used to play basketball, and Khrushchev for some reason rather liked basketball and thought that Russian basketball was much better, the greatest basketball in the world. And I didn't want to create a big international incident, but I did tell him that any good college team in America could beat the best team that the Russians could provide. And he didn't like that, but then he too didn't want to get into a thing. He said, how tall are you? And I said, I'm six centimeters shorter than Peter the Great. And from that time on, he thought that was a great answer. And he began to refer to me, uh, not as Mr. Cal, but as Piotr Veliki. He would always pompously talk in these large terms, but it helped me as a journalist because he could spot me. And when I saw him and he would beckon I would be able to come over to him and his security people knew that, and they opened the path to allow me to get to him. So he would, on occasion, use me as a way of putting out the word, uh, which for me was a terrific story, and for him was a bit of propaganda. But that is one of those times when journalism conveys uh, propaganda because the propaganda is the judgment of the opposition figure in this case, uh, Khrushchev. And so it was helpful to me and I met him and it was, it's wonderful for any journalist. Um, I mean, if you're covering Capitol Hill, it's awfully good, awfully good to know Madam Pelosi. I mean, it's just good to know her. It's good to know Senator Schumer from New York. head of the senate democrat so sure getting to know people is access access is an important thing for any journalist
1: we already kind of touched on it honestly but how does the current conflict russia and ukraine in your opinion align with sort of russian ideologies throughout history is it very much part of the same trend
0: the answer to that kevin is in my opinion, rather complicated. I will do my very best to try to explain it, but I'll probably not do it well. In Russian history, if you are a Russian, you think of Russian history as that which has taken place in the vast plain that runs from what is today Poland all the way to China on the other side of Asia in your mind as a Russian, all of that is Russia. It breaks down into various parts. There are national. Ukraine itself means on the edge of. Ukraine means borderland. So in a Russian mind, Ukraine is simply the border, the edge of Russia. So for Putin, he could not tolerate the thought that that place we now call Ukraine was peeling off from what he regards as Russia and going toward the West. And he tolerated it and tolerated it in 2003 and then in 2014. And at this particular point, he felt that Ukraine, um, was moving irrevocably toward the West, and he felt he had to stop it. He thought the whole thing would take two or three days. It was a massive miscalculation on his part. And he's now paying a terrible price. Unfortunately, the Ukrainian people are paying a much, much bigger price. And how this whole thing ends up, God knows. But um, it's not going to be a contented, satisfying end to either Russia or Ukraine. And that piece of the world is going to be hot, unhappy, bloody, tortured, I fear, for many years to come.
1: Very well put. I think, uh, yeah, you got the summary in there. Okay. (laughs) I really appreciate you coming on. Great
0: Thank you, Kevin. You're very kind. I
1: appreciate it all. Tune in to the Sperber Prize podcast next time for my conversation with Carrie K. Greenidge about her book, Black Radical, The Life and Times of William Monroe Trotter. Special thanks to this episode's guest, Marvin Cobb, to Fordham University and to the Sperber Prize committee for making this show possible. For more information about the Sperber Prize, you can visit our website at SperberPrize.com. Thanks for listening, and I will talk to you soon.